0: All right, we're going to move on now uh, to our next speaker, uh, Victor Valcor. He is a professor of medicine and neurology, looks like geriatric medicine, uh, UCSF. He's going to talk to us about neurocognitive disorders uh, in HIV, and he's on his way up.
1: So, that was intimidating. Uh, too many questions. I'm already getting nervous. Uh, and I'm three minutes over, so I'm going to use uh, your three minutes. I'm sure uh, in in my talk. Uh, and I'll I'm not going to go quickly, but I may skip over some pieces in the slides that you can read uh, and just kind of move on on your own, so that I can cover things well. The the learning objectives I think you've seen, but we also will be talking about inflammation, and I think. Exercise, which uh, I just gave this talk in in Mexico, and that's what we decided was the end of the day. We'll start with this question. In studies designed to understand the frequency of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, or HAND, which of these statements is true? The frequency of HAND is now similar to what it was before. We had combination antiretroviral therapy. The frequency of cognitive impairment among people with sustained viral suppression is less than 5%. Or C, progression of cognitive impairment is the most common course for people with HIV-related cognitive impairment when they have suppressed virus. So progression is the most common course. A, B, or C? Good. Um, We're going to answer this question soon, so you'll see. So what I, in fact, here's the answer. (laughs) Impaired cognition remains an important challenge. Probably a third to half of people living with HIV have some level of cognitive impairment. The etiology is complex. We'll talk a bit about inflammation in some studies. Comorbidities are something to consider. Cerebrovascular disease may be one of the more important things for our older patients living with HIV. And then at the end of this talk, I just want to share some of the work that we do in distinguishing Alzheimer's disease from HIV-related cognitive impairment, which I think is one of the most pressing issues around geriatric neuro-HIV, so taking care of people's brain as they get older. It's really puzzling to me that we don't know the frequency of cognitive impairment in people who are suppressed. Uh, It would take a pretty large study to do it, and we'd have to study people uh, largely suppressed. The charter study... Uh, If you look very careful at it, this is a a study that says 50% of people have cognitive impairment, have hand. If you look very carefully at it, about 50% of those people are not optimally treated. Some were not on therapy, and some were not suppressed. Now, this is a population-based study that really gathered what was happening in the epidemic in the United States at the time, so we have a good sense of the frequency, but that's not the reality in my clinic and probably not in your clinic, For people that are not suppressed, we kind of know where we have to put our energy. We need to get them on the right regimen, get them suppressed, get them adherent, deal with issues that are barriers toward adherence. So the real question is what do we do with people who are suppressed and have cognitive impairment? And I think that's an interesting question that we we really don't have great data in terms of figuring out how frequently it occurs. Here are four studies across the U.S. and the world with rates from 69 to 19% among people who were suppressed. I would guess about a third of people are suppressed. And in our own work, the rate of doing poorly on cognitive tests is about twice as high as it would be for a population of people who don't have HIV. So uh, believe it or not, if you're healthy and doing well, you will be impaired on cognitive tests, depending on how many tests you do, about 10 to 15% of the time. So 10%, 10% to 15% of the population will not do well enough on tests to be considered completely normal. That's That's typical. In a setting of HIV, it's higher, it's more like 30% of people. So some of those might not have done well even without HIV. So the rate of impairment that we see today compared to before antiretrovirals is about the same. About 50% of people um, in the charter study, particularly, had uh, cognitive impairment. Now, the rate of dementia, which is the more severe form, is very, very low now. And they have 5% here, I would gather less than that. My experience is uh, I don't see dementia. I see, uh, I can probably count on one or two hands how many people I've cared for who have a dementia diagnosis in the setting of HIV. They all have a mild impairment and, um, and an inefficiency that's really uh, very real. When I see people that are having cognitive problems, I still see motor, cognitive, and behavioral components, much less in the motor than we would have seen without treatment. So the motor symptoms that I sometimes see is a little bit of increased tone, maybe some slowness in how fast they tap their fingers, certainly some challenges in doing more complex things that I'll share with you in a case report later in this talk, but not a very prominent piece. Of course, we still see a fair amount of neuropathy. Um, We see behavioral problems. We see apathy. We see depression. And it's important to know that the apathy has been linked to structures in the brain and shrinkage of those structures. So lack of motivation could, in in fact, be considered pretty clearly a component of HIV. So don't dismiss it as a non-HIV thing, Um, and particularly for people who have impairment of their frontal lobes, this ability to have drive and want to do things can be impaired. We also see a fair amount of depression, and a number of studies have correlated the number of depressive symptoms to how much inflammation you can measure in blood. Again, I would just state that because it reduces a little bit of the stigma around the depression and also tells you that in fact in some cases, the virus, the inflammation is probably contributing to that. But what we really think about is the cognitive piece and what people will most commonly tell me is their memory's not working well. When I dig into it and do some testing, I almost always find that their memory is okay. That means they can, their hippocampus can make new memories. Where most of the challenge is, typically, is in attention. That they are having a hard time hearing the information in order to make, let me tell you how we do this. So if we gave everyone in this audience 15 words to remember, and we repeated that list five times, by the time we got to the fifth time, most of you would probably remember 12 to 15 of those words. The first time I read the list to you, you're paying attention, you're probably going to give back to me five or six of them. Most of our HIV patients give back, or patients living with HIV, give back two or three. So they didn't get it that first time it came out. We repeat it again, they may get up to four. We repeat it again, they get up to six or seven. By the time we get to the fifth trial, they get to nine, ten, not anywhere near fifteen. And among those nine, they tend to remember them. So the memory is working. But the ability, the efficiency in learning, the attention is where we often see the challenges. And it can be confusing because the patient is concerned about memory. And if you send them off for neuropsychological testing, they're going to score poorer on memory tests. But if you look at the details of it, they actually remember what they learned. So it's a learning inefficiency rather than a memory problem. Um, And this is a challenging concept but something I see very commonly. And we also see some mental slowing. So many of the cognitive domains we think about in in, um, when I think about how the brain works can be affected with HIV. The symptoms of attentional problems, often you'll hear patients say, I I don't read anymore or I read less or I have to reread things in order to get it done. That's an attentional deficit. Sometimes information processing is slower We can capture this on tests where we're trying to see how fast people do things. But in your clinics, what you might hear is, I used to play the piano very quickly. Now I can't get it to go quite as quickly. My fingers don't move when my brain tells them to go as fast. I've had people tell me that they're having a hard time dancing now. Those multiple tasks where you have to move very quickly and your your neurons need to be firing in unison very quickly. Or a very common thing is I'm becoming more socially isolated because I can't keep up with the conversation when I go to a party. I can't keep up with that banter. I used to have quick quips to everything, and now I can't, and I'm embarrassed by that. This is one of the symptoms that I see. So you can see these are subtle things, and many people would say, listen, don't worry about it. But in fact, this is really irritating in And the inefficiency is very noticeable by our patients. It's a mild inefficiency. In people that have complex jobs, it can affect their ability to do them. If they're doing multiple tasks at the same time, I've had people tell me they answer the fax machine instead of answering the phone because they just can't manage all of that information. Or lawyers who used to have these complex spreadsheets are having a hard time managing them anymore. So certainly it can affect people's ability to do um, their work. Uh, I will tell you that I care for Maybe hundreds of people who have a cognitive impairment. Some I've been following for 10 or 15 years, and they don't progress. They fluctuate. One year they may not do well on testing. Another year they'll do a little bit better. Some days they come in and they test normally, and then they come in the next year they don't test normally. That's what I see, fluctuating encephalopathy, as if you have a chronic flu that you can't get rid of, and something stresses you a little bit more, you have more symptoms from your flu. Maybe it's something you ate with the gut. Maybe it's something in your day. Maybe it's the, the medication you took last night. Something's pushing you over the edge because you're always on that tightrope of, uh, of uh, ability to do what you want to do in the day. This is a complex slide of data that we presented, um, that we published that just said in people over 60 who are suppressed for at least three years, and we followed them to make sure they were, the rate of atrophy, shrinking of their brain, was faster and sometimes much faster than people who are very healthy and don't live with HIV. And I I use those words very carefully, the very healthy, our group of comparisons were people who were doing very well in life and didn't have a lot of comorbidity. Two other papers have published that they didn't see this accelerated atrophy. One was in a younger population, and that may be a fact of, there is a tipping point around 60 years of age where the brain shrinks faster in some people and so we may be able to pick up on that. Another study excluded anyone with cerebrovascular disease and I think this is quite important because when you have a little stroke, a little scarring, your brain contracts a little bit so that shrinkage might be from that. So for us, we do see it, it's concerning but the reason for it, I'm not exactly sure and we're digging into it a little bit more. So for people who are older, I worry about this in terms of brain reserve and their ability to to manage other things. like Alzheimer's disease or diseases that may happen. I think I have just two slides on uh, inflammation. This is my favorite study. It was done out of London. It's a small group. Um, it was done by a friend who enrolled about 10 people who were perfectly healthy, asymptomatic, living in the community, young, doing well, living with HIV suppressed, high CD4 cell count uh, suppressed virus. I had no symptoms. He was, he was certain that they were doing perfectly fine. These are healthy community-dwelling, HIV-positive individuals. They had inflammation in their brain by this PET scan using a binder that binds microglia um, compared to people who were not HIV-infected and matched. So to me, this really gives evidence that people living with HIV are, as a group, maybe not each individual, but as a group, living with a higher level of inflammation that's detectable in the brain. And what was more, even though all these people tested perfectly normal on cognitive measures, if you looked at the variability on their ability to do executive function tests, it correlated with how much inflammation was found in the brain. The more inflammation they found by this marker TPSO, the worse you did on executive function tests, even though you did normal. So there's variability. That's the efficiency I'm talking about. We have people who are able to do everything. They're still able to hold their jobs, but they're not as efficient. This is the face of cognitive impairment in the setting of antiretroviral therapy. This is another study showing essentially the same thing using a different technique called diffusion tensor imaging, which uh, looks at the integrity of your white matter tracks in the brain, how well your brain is connected to other parts of the brain, and you can correlate that level of connectivity to measurable inflammation in plasma among people that are fully suppressed for a long time. So we're still able to measure these inflammatory markers in the blood. It correlates to the integrity of the brain, and that integrity also correlates to performance on executive function tests. So we have several uh, lines of evidence showing that there's much more, but I don't have time to go into it. Cerebrovascular disease is an interesting thing, uh, phenomenon in HIV. I'm not sure if this is a legacy effect. I'm not sure we're going to see as much of this in our younger HIV-infected individuals who are on treatment at higher CD4 cell count, but certainly in our older population and those that grew up in an era when we didn't have therapies or were on some of the earlier therapies that could have been more toxic, we see quite a bit of cerebrovascular disease. So in my work, I see only people over 60 years of age and and I would say a third to a fifth have substantial cerebrovascular disease on brain imaging. In this case, the autopsy showed 50% had mild to moderate or severe, uh, I'm sorry, moderate to severe uh, atherosclerosis in the brain. This is what it looks like on an image if you get an MRI. The white shiny stuff there around the ventricles is uh, a pretty typical pattern in the top of cerebrovascular disease. In the bottom, these are images you may end up seeing, and they were very scary to me when I first started seeing these. I've been following people now for decades with these types of scans. Is this a legacy effect? I I don't know. Could it be that people had an, uh, um, an inflammatory response when they started antiretrovirals? I don't know. I know that the burden of this white matter disease correlates with hypertension. I know it correlates with diabetes. It correlates with smoking. In fact, it's the people that smoke and have HIV that have the highest burden of this. So there's something about smoking and having HIV that seems to increase the risk um, of having this white matter burden. And the amount of this white matter burden does correlate to how people do on tests of cognition. So at least in our older population, I think this is pretty important. I'm less clear um, about people who start therapy early in in, in diagnosis, so when they have a high CD4 cell count, and are on therapies that may have less toxicities. Um, This is essentially saying what I I just told you in terms of it correlating with um, cognition and and that we see it more in the older population. So this is important in terms of um, risk for a, a clinical syndrome. So this slide is not about HIV. This is about everybody in the world. The rate of having a dementia syndrome goes up exponentially with age. The red line shows that. Every five years, your risk for having a dementia syndrome doubles. So at 60, it's less than 1%, but by the time you're 65, it gets to be about 2%, by 74%, by 75, 8%, you see how that goes. If you have cerebrovascular disease with it, the curve goes up, so you're more likely to have it. This is a really fascinating thing I love to tell audiences, but you can have the pathology of Alzheimer's disease and not have dementia. Many people don't realize that. People have died with the pathology of Alzheimer's disease and did not have a dementia syndrome when they were alive. Uh, Not common, I'm not going to say, you know, there are a lot of people with this, but it certainly has been described in cohort studies. What tips people over is if they also have cerebrovascular disease. This is a very important thing worldwide as we try to prevent dementia. We have failed at therapies for dementia, but we could prevent a third of dementias if we tackle these cerebrovascular risk factors. Diabetes, exercise, a healthy diet and as well around the world give good education to people in early life which is a protective strategy I'll share with you the last slide the Lancer report saying that we can prevent a third of dementias and I think um, it's very important for our HIV positive uh... people to think about this as well So. Um, other comorbidities i don 't have time to talk about. I know that this is the uh, bread and butter of a lot of work you do in the clinics, but I also know that you are all very aware when somebody 's on a high dose of narcotics what it can do for their cognitive abilities when they 're on uh, twenty five different medicines that you 're not exactly sure how they all interact when they 're doing methamphetamine on the weekends or they 're um, they're smoking marijuana every night. Um, I think you all have a good sense of those um, issues and Uh, The comorbidity with psychiatric illness, sometimes pre-morbid to the HIV is another large challenge that I'm not going to go into, but this certainly contributes in in people's ability to perform um, at a functional level. So that's stuff that you probably know better than I, but uh, in the workshops we can manage that and walk through some of those as well. So what I uh, spend a lot of time thinking about now is, will we be able to distinguish Alzheimer's disease from HIV-related impairment? Um, And as I showed you before, if you have more than one thing, your rate of Alzheimer's disease is likely to go up. We don't really know the answer uh, about this. We do not know if there's a higher risk for cognitive impairment of the Alzheimer's type in people living with HIV into old age. We don't know if if the appearance of Alzheimer's disease will be different, and we we don't know if the course will be faster because we just don't have enough cases now that are in that background rate of um, age, where there's a high risk for Alzheimer's disease. Some of you may have seen a paper that was published saying that the risk for Alzheimer's disease may be lower in HIV because of antitrovirals. I think that's a very risky statement. It's based on how many case reports there are out there now of people living with HIV who have Alzheimer's disease. I've published a case report. It's one of about 20 people I've diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease living with HIV. So if you're just going by case reports to estimate the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease and HIV, it's a big, scary moment um, because it's much much higher than what you can read in case reports. I, I can't believe that there will be a protective effect, but uh, that is an argument that's been made. Just uh, you know, based on the brain reserve theories, I would think it's higher. Sometimes I get a question from the audience, like who cares, right? You can't treat Alzheimer's disease. We're doing everything for HIV. Why do I want to distinguish the two? I just throw it back to people and say, what do you think about yourself? If you came to see me and I said, well, come back in three years, I'll tell you what you had. I don't think that's the way we should be doing medicine. And, and I think that we have ways that we can clinically figure this out. In my work treating Alzheimer's disease, people often will ask that as well. But there's a tremendous amount of things we can do in terms of uh, autonomy for an individual, making decisions and planning, and knowing the course of your disease. Having clarity of your diagnosis sometimes reduces the stress tremendously. It's the, you know, people will often tell me it was those three years where no one could tell me what I had that was the most stressful part of my life. Once I knew what it was, I could tackle it and work with my family to get through it. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we would do this in in people living with HIV. As I said, we, we don't know a lot of features about the course of this disease and whether it will be higher. I can tell you from pathology studies of people who have died with HIV and they've looked at the brain, they do find amyloid very frequently in people living with HIV. But it's not the kind of amyloid that we see in Alzheimer's disease, it's a diffuse amyloid. It hasn't aggregated into those neuritic plaques that are typical of Alzheimer's disease. Is this priming the pump? I don't know, but we do see it. We also see this protein called uh, TDP43, which is seen in frontal temporal dementia, another age-related dementia. So could there be higher risk for that? We also find alpha-synuclein, which is a, a protein we see in Lewy body dementia or in Parkinson's dementia. So could there be increased risk for that? We, we don't know, but these are concerning factors, I would say. Let me ask my second and last ARS question. So when you see an older adult living with HIV with new cognitive problems, which tests would you be most likely to order in order to distinguish Alzheimer's disease from HIV-related impairment? brain imaging, where the patterns of shrinkage will be very distinctive in the two diseases, uh, cerebral fluid to measure HIV RNA in the CSF, uh, the pattern of neuropsychological testing, I think I've answered that one already, or cerebral spinal fluid to look at Alzheimer's markers to measure amyloid and tau in CSF. Tell me which you think might be useful, and then I'll share some, some uh, thoughts. Good. Um, well, let's remember that. Neuropsychological testing, I'll, I'll share with you how challenging they are, and, and we have a slide on brain imaging. Um, it's been very validating for me to show my, the images of people I see in clinic to our doctors who do not see HIV, and, and I can't tell you how many times they say, Victor, that's Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's remarkable, uh, but it's not. So um, we'll, we'll walk through this a little bit and try to get... Um, some, some some clarity. This is somebody I saw, maybe this is somebody in your clinic. He's 75 years old, he's at 16 years of education, he came to see me because his brother died at 79 of Alzheimer's disease. So he has a first degree relative, Who died of alzheimer's disease and had the disease about his age this is high risk for alzheimer's disease right this is a first degree relative with alzheimer's disease his hiv history is not very remarkable he's lived with the virus for many years but never had a very low cd4 cell count and currently is well treated with a high uh, cd4 cell count he's on an integrase based uh, inhibitor uh, regimen and adherent and suppressed and so forth He's had subtle decline in memory and executive functioning, started 5 to 10 years ago. He feels like it's progressing, and uh, he's able to continue to do everything he needs to do, so he's functionally independent. So if he has Alzheimer's disease, he's in the mild cognitive impairment stage of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, He's had depression, but it's well-treated, and as you can see here, has a few comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease. When I do a neurologic exam, I don't find a whole lot. What I find is difficulty with the Luria sequences, which is a, a sequence where you have people do hand movements repetitively, and this is something I constantly see as a challenge in people living with HIV. And it's, I think it speaks to the same type of stuff that makes it difficult for them to type on a computer, and they say, my fingers get messed up, or I'm on the piano and I can't keep up as fast. I think it's that kind of motor memory that people are having difficulty with. On a Montreal, uh, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, he scores 24. Again, he's in that MCI uh, area where you would be worried about somebody um, who didn't have HIV, in HIV as well with cognitive impairment. Uh, and on the MOCA, you can see it here, he had a hard time connecting the dots uh, so that's kind of higher functioning, more uh, set shifting, executive functioning. Interestingly, had a difficult time with the cube, which is probably also executive functioning. It's more planning than it is visual. And it's clock as well, lots of planning trouble. So he's got a, a substantial challenges with executive functioning. If you can see it here, uh, those of you who do MOCAs, you, he didn't know a rhinoceros. So I don't know what to make of that. Uh, most people know a rhinoceros, but not everybody, so th- that could be an issue that he 's having a hard time with naming and If you look at the memory, the first time I read five words to him, he remembers I think I see three there 's the inefficiency in learning right If I said five words to you, you would get them and say them back to me pretty easily if I told you to pay attention. People with HIV have a challenge. I read the list again, he got four words, never got to the five that 's the attention problem now shoot down to the bottom where you ask them, now what were those words I asked you to say? You can see he remembered four. So his memory is okay, but his attention is not good. So this is pretty typical of HIV. Um, Having said that, when we do more cognitive tests with him, he is having some impairment in visual memory, which is worrisome but it could also be executive functioning that we, we see coming out, as you saw with his clock. And not naming the rhinoceros was real. He had, when we gave him 15 words that he should have known, he only remembered 12 of them. That's very unusual in HIV. I usually do not see a language impairment in HIV. It's very common in Alzheimer's disease. People have an anomia. They stop, they, they, you know, it's at the tip of the tongue. They can't come up with a word, right? You've all seen that in people who are living with Alzheimer's. And then he has some slowing. So I can't tell what he has here. He could have both, right? It's, it's really puzzling. His brain image is normal, which is, uh, red as normal, and I agree it's normal. So I'm really at a loss. You know, what, what, what do I want to do next? Do I want to change his antiretrovirals to get something that penetrates into the brain more? If you think that's the right answer, come to the workshop and let's walk through that because there are at least two studies that say you shouldn't do that. Now, there are exceptions to that for certain, The CNS escape, certain, and I'm happy to go through that detail with you in the workshop. In people that are starting antiretrovirals for the first time with cognitive impairment, there are some data that they will get better faster if you put them on better medicines for the brain, but we do not have long-term follow-up, and my guess is it doesn't matter after a year. And if you have somebody with cognitive impairment and you try to put them on a regimen that's really good for the brain, they end up with a, co- a complex regimen that's two, three times a day, some pills once, sometimes twice, sometimes three times, where you end up is a cognitively impaired person is not taking the pills. So this come to the workshop and we can talk through that if that's what you would do. Put them on cholinesterase inhibitors, I would say no. You know, we, we don't even think they work that well in Alzheimer's disease. Um... But And it would be empirical and possibly wrong. Watch and wait. I've already told you that I don't think this is reasonable. I don't think we should say come back in three years and I'll let you know what you had. I think we should try to dig into it. Um, look at CSF Alzheimer's markers. Well, that's probably where the answer is, and I'll talk to you about that in a bit. I already walked you through this neuropsychological testing battery to share that there's a lot of overlap between HIV and Alzheimer's disease, and in fact we've seen cases that look exactly like Alzheimer's disease that we know don't based on some studies that we can do in research that are not available clinically. If you ask a computer to distinguish somebody from HIV from somebody who has Alzheimer's disease with no other information except their structural brain image, the computer can do it with 95 percent accuracy. So there's something about brain imaging that's very good. Yet, if you ask clinicians, it's horrible. We can't see it with the naked eye. So there's work to be done, but it looks like imaging may have some promise in distinguishing these two. Uh, but right now, uh, from, from uh, the naked eye, no. Biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease have been studied quite a bit, mostly in the setting of people that are not suppressed, and they are perturbed. Alzheimer's will typically have a pattern with low amyloid and high tau in CSF. We see low amyloid or high tau in HIV, but we don't often see both. And I have at least three cases now where we see both, and I'm convinced that all of them have Alzheimer's disease. We also have a lot of cases that they're normal. About a third to half come back with normal Alzheimer's biomarkers, and I'm comfortable that they do not have Alzheimer's disease. But about a third to a fifth will come back with either low amyloid or high tau, and I don't know what to do with those. I think that they're higher risk, but I don't think they have Alzheimer's disease. So the CSF biomarkers, which you can order and get paid for, may be valuable in difficult cases. This may be something you want a specialty center to dig into, but it's possible. I think there's promise there. So that's what I would recommend doing. And I'm going to skip the summary points so that I can um really go to what i think is is more important like what can we do now so should you screen in an audience like this i'm very comfortable saying no in an audience of my peers that are neurologists and and neuropsychologists i'm very nervous about that i would probably get attacked and maybe somebody here will attack me as well we don't have good screening tools and we have a lot of things that we should be doing for these people that are rather ubiquitous of taking care of them Um, So to just, in a clinic, just try to find out who has, you're probably increasing anxiety. You may not do things that are tremendously different. You're still going to work on the medications. You're going to work on recreational drug use. You're going to work on all these things that we talked about, And, uh, but you're going to be getting prevalence data that may not necessarily help. The test, if you are going to do it, don't use the mini mental status exam. It's rather useless in HIV related impairment. And the international HIV dementia scale is useless as well. The MOCA is probably the best, but the area under the curve is only about 70 to 75%. So it's not a perfect test. So treatment recommendations, I promise I'm, I'm going to be done in two minutes. Adherence to antiretrovirals is critical. Suppression of plasma virus, that's what you need to work on. Refer to a specialist if you're worried about Alzheimer's disease. In rare cases, consider CNS escape. These are the cases that are more rapid, are progressing, have new neurologic problems. Maybe in people who have had resistance in blood with blips, these are the people I worry about more. People who had a very low nadir in the past may be at higher risk too. But for somebody who has 5 to 10 years of persistent and maybe slightly increasing symptoms, the yield is pretty low um, for CNS escape. And I can go into that in the workshop more. Think about polypharmacy and medications that can impact cognition. Think about compensatory measures. So because it's attentional, people respond to lists, reminders, alerts. These are things you can tell individuals to to try to do to help with their day-to-day life. I think also limiting multitasking sometimes can help. If people are comfortable disclosing to their friends that they have a hard time keeping up with banter, that may alleviate some of the social isolation, but that's not always a possibility for people. Reassurance that the trajectory for the illness related to HIV is not one that looks like Alzheimer's disease. It's one of a chronic, fluctuating, mild inefficiency that, um, that they will that they maybe have to learn to live with because we don't have effective treatments right now, aside from making sure that the virus is completely suppressed. And I would add to that, people that are on really atypical regimens, and I see quite a few, that they tell me that they're suppressed. I had one person who was on for a week, off for a week. I think they need to be on every week and uh, because we don't want any elevation of virus, any resurgence, and then empowerment uh, around the symptoms. This is my last slide. This is the Lancet report. For all of us who want to prevent dementia, this is what they suggested. You can, in the world, we can decrease the rate of dementia by 35% if we address these core risk factors. Now, this is based on epidemiologic data, so all of you who work with uh, data may shrug a bit, but this is what we have right now. This is what we have that is contributing, connected, linked to dementia, and a lot of these things we can treat in our patients living with HIV. Exercise social engagement, uh, stop smoking, manage uh, to keep good weight, treat hypertension, uh, diabetes, etc. And thank you very much for your attention. Now I have to answer questions. Yeah, have a seat. <laughs> this, is scar- this is scary. In the hot seat. Yeah, this is the hot seat. Yeah. I, saw, I, I witnessed it. I'm nervous. So uh, while
0: people uh, get up to the microphone, I'll start with uh, some of the written questions here. Um, HIV patients are disproportionately affected by social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Have studies compared cognitive impairment controlling for this in HIV-positive patients?
1: Yeah, so um, that's a great question, and this is one the European group has worked on the most. So uh... really looking at cognition in people where you recruit from the same places and they make assumptions that if you go to an STD clinic you are uh... similarly um, matched by the social determinants of health and they see reduced rates of cognitive impairment when you compare it to that population And we've also done that in, in work that I did in Hawaii more than two decades ago where you you bring in friends, family members, uh, people that go to the gay men's choir, people that are kind of in the same social groups, and you do find a higher rate of testing poorly on tests in that control group, but we still see some correlation with HIV. There are two really interesting pieces to that I, that I love that question for. One is I i think we have to think about the core factors that are causing cognitive impairment and not using titles labels to um, identify groups that are higher risk so hiv is a group that has a higher risk but we need to get to the root causes race is another one we often talk about higher rates of alzheimer's disease in people who are of african-american heritage if you dig into it it has nothing to do with the genetics of, your, of who you are. It has all to do with whether you have access to care, what kind of reading, you know, how, how much you were read to when you were a child, the stress that is in your family. You can, you can really pull that all out. The second reason why I love that question is I shared with you the information that inflammation correlates to cognitive performance, and yet this question still comes up. And we have to be quite careful in working with our patients that we don't stigmatize them more to say that this is all the social determinants of who you are. It has nothing to do with HIV. It has only to do with, you know, how you were raised, uh, what kind of access you had to things, drugs that you've been using, all these other factors that we can loop into the the social and demographic factors. I would say be really careful about that because I, I, I shared with you that inflammation correlates to this, so there's something more. Could that inflammation be because of stress in a, an environment where you, you don't have income coming into the house? Possibly, but I, I would worry a bit that we're ignoring the fact that these individuals are living with a virus that is likely to cause inflammation.
0: Great uh, question at the mic here. Um, yeah, hey, so I ran an oncology rehab program for four years, so I talked to all my HIV patients about exercise sort of nonstop as a protective measure for successful aging, for inflammation. On a scale of 1 to 10, for neurocognitive protection, where do you place exercise?
1: So the data are not great, Um, uh, and this is data that's not in HIV. So I don't know if you've heard of studies like the finger study and and many of the exercise studies in people with mild cognitive impairment Alzheimer's type. Um, They're a signal, but it's not a huge signal. and, and so my guess is that even in the setting of HIV, the direct relationship from having somebody exercise to the degree to which you could improve cognition is probably limited. Having said that, the benefits are exponential around paper and pencil tests. The social engagement, the, the sense of well-being, the sense of empowerment. Uh, so when we talk about caring for people, I had a, a mentor who once told me Um, he was very excited about data that he he had about somebody's perceived quality of care in this huge HMO. And he was very happy about the perceived quality of care. And I said, well, what about the quality of care? And he said, does that matter? And and I thought a little bit about that. Of course it does matter, but it also matters how people feel. If you can relieve suffering without changing a paper and pencil test, that's valuable. We just finished a mindfulness-based stress reduction test. study, trying to see if we could improve attention, and we didn't improve attention. doesn't look like we did, but everybody felt better, almost universally. Is that matter? I think it matters. I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to alleviate suffering, and, and we might not want to focus as much on the paper and pencil tests. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So can hand also be misdiagnosed as Parkinson's, and would the misdiagnosis make a difference?
1: Well, yes. Um, There's a case report of um, somebody with progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a Parkinson-type dementia syndrome, that was missed. And um, when the person was treated for HIV, it went away. That's a case report, but it tells you quite a bit about what HIV can do to the brain, attacking the basal ganglia, causing a Parkinson's-like syndrome. Not common, but... Certainly a possibility, and it has been written up. So I would agree um, that's a possibility. Uh, we see some Parkinsonism in people that are treated. Uh, I haven't myself seen anyone with Parkinson's disease that progressed and treated HIV. Uh, that's due to HIV. I've seen people with Parkinson's disease and HIV. They both happen to the same people. That, um, that, so that would be a little bit of a different. But certainly there's evidence that you can get what we call a phenocopy of a Parkinson's-like disease due to HIV. And those of you who were treating HIV before we had treatment saw Parkinson's disease in full, and um, it's full in people uh, in, in stages of their um, disease when they couldn't treat for HIV. So it's a very clear possibility. Great, uh, question at the mic. Undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea is common. Um, can you talk about the cognitive effects? I didn't hear the question.
0: Obstructive sleep apnea. Oh,
1: very common. Uh, thank you for asking that question. Um, in our one of the studies that we're enrolling now, we really try to get a very clear phenotype of HIV-related impairment. We've screened. This is people over sixty living with HIV and suppressed virus. We've screened over two hundred people to get sixty, uh, and that maybe gives you an indication of how often we think it's all. HIV and not other stuff, but one of the more common things that I find when I talk to patients is they have worrisome signs of sleep apnea, and so we often send people to sleep clinics to get tested, and many of them come back needing some supplementation, so this is something I've become very alert to in my care is sleep, and um, I think our sleep center is a little Worried about how worried I am about it because I, you know, there are screening tools that you can use for sleep apnea, and I tend to have even more of a worry, particularly if somebody has a buffalo hump or some, you know, phenotypic differences. more, most recently, I, I couldn't believe the story I heard of somebody who said he sleeps and it's erratic, and he says he starts dreaming that he can't breathe, and he can't breathe, and he wakes up and gasps. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, who have you told this to? You you, you need to get tested. Uh, it's probably You're probably not dreaming. You're, you know, so, yes, that's a really important thing. Thanks for bringing it up.
0: So a couple questions about the use of medications that we might use in attention deficit disorder for uh, persons that have difficulty with attention?
1: Yeah, um, I don't use them. I I really haven't used them in any of the patients that I've seen yet. People come to me and they have been on them and they are on them. Usually uh, they come to me and and the medicines are being used more for fatigue or uh, really uh, daytime somnolence. i think it 's a slippery slope uh, i I tend to spend a lot more time talking to people about compensatory measures, things that are non pharmacologic uh, and uh, and I also try to treat depression in using antiretru- using i 'm sorry using uh, SSRIs that tend to stimulate a bit more or higher enough doses that we can get a little bit of stimulation for the apathy and drive pieces of it um, but uh, I also don't know of any studies that have shown this. There was a small study in New York that never got published that apparently had some evidence of efficacy. If anybody knows that study, let me know. But I've never seen a study that has shown benefit. If you are using them, be careful because there are, of course, drug-drug interactions with produce inhibitors. Great. Do you
0: see cognitive impairment such as hand in younger patients, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds?
1: Yeah, we do. Um, Historically, we, of course, did, and the rate of impairment is higher in people who are older. Um, but we, we enrolled, for example, a group of people in Bangkok, Thailand, that are infected and uh, start medicines within within two weeks of infection, sometimes before they even serologically convert, and we see a lot of impaired uh, performance there. Um, so we, we know that it can affect people uh, in in younger ages and of course those of you who remember one of the scariest and saddest things with children uh, and I run many studies with children who have a substantial uh, learning challenge so yes it, it's it doesn't it doesn't um, select for age it happens in all ages we probably see it more in older people because they're perhaps more aware of age-related changes that may be faster um, you know I, I can tell you that if I misplace my keys, I don't think too much about it. Maybe now I'm starting to worry about it if I do. But if you're 70, you start misplacing your keys. You start saying, "Hmm, maybe I need to," or at least maybe your your wife will say, "Hmm, you might need to get that checked out." So I think there's a little bit of an age sensitivity around the symptoms that people are more likely to go in if they if they're older. Great. Uh, here's a
0: question about uh, polypharmacy uh, and cognition. And are there particular medications you look for that should be avoided, um, for example, uh, benzodiazepines or tricyclics? Or-
1: yeah, so, you, you, you know, the the BEERS criteria are something you can use for that. They're not perfect. You know, most of the people I have with HIV uh, that score high on the BEERS criteria, it's because of mirtazapine, which has a lot of anticholinergic properties. And so it scores very high on the Beers criteria because of people with Alzheimer's disease and going against the acetylcholine mechanisms. Yet in my patients with HIV, it's I'm often very happy to have them on mirtazapine. So you can't use the Beers criteria perfectly. I don't think the mechanisms are the same. But the medicines often end up being similar. I guess the other class that I worry a little less than I do with my Alzheimer's patients are the antispasmodic bladder medicines, again, because they're for anticholinergic, and I don't perceive the HIV-related impairment to be a cholinergic mechanism. So I'm less worried about them. But certainly the benzodiazepines, the narcotics, Um, high doses of some of the other antidepressants. Um, Those are the medicines I see most commonly. And then you can also just see the sheer magnitude. Um, I walk through why people are on supplements sometimes, and I I can't figure it out, and I really try to push them to simplify this because we don't sometimes know. We we have a good sense that some of them don't have efficacy, but we don't necessarily know if they're causing more harm. So I think that that also is a, a list that I
0: work on. All right, a final question here, and I apologize we haven't been able to get all of the questions, but uh, Dr. Valker, I'm sure, will be available <clears throat> during the break. Uh, um, and this is a little spin on, on what you had mentioned. Is there less cognitive change in patients on ART that better penetrates the blood-brain barrier? So not really suggesting making changes, but if you actually look at what people are on and penetration is their relationship.
1: Well... You know, if you read the literature, you'll find papers that suggest that. And I would argue that there's a selection bias in what is published. And uh, because I simply don't think that's true. I don't think it matters. I think suppressing plasma virus is 95 to 96 percent of the game regardless of what you're on. There are data that the drugs that get through to the brain are more neurotoxic. There are studies that show with higher penetration you can have more CNS toxicity, so maybe that's offsetting any gains. I think we should, and I'm saying this with a little bit of trepidation because I know it's going to go right back to my colleagues at San Diego, but I think we should move to an era where we're not, worried about that quite as much and that we're just trying to treat and suppress plasma virus and get that done and then worry about the exceptions which are going to be one percent two percent and those are going to be the cases you're most worried about where you may want to talk to somebody or if you're going to make changes do a lumbar puncture first to make sure they're suppressed in csf or not which if they're not it would be an indication to do it but those are, I think, are going to be more of an exception and not your day-to-day routine. And, and those 2% of cases may deserve getting seen by somebody like me that thinks about it a lot day-to-day. So um, I'm going, as I said, I, you can definitely find a paper and you could hold it in my face and say, you're wrong, Victor, here it is, because I know there are papers out there that show it, but I know there are contrary papers that also show the toxicities of these medicines. And I would argue that there's a bias in the literature that's published because most people are doing perfectly fine with the regimen they're on, just suppress in plasma.
0: Great, thank you. And thank you very much for a great talk.